Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Christopher Brown, and I'm the director of the Ashmolean Museum here in Oxford. And it's a very great pleasure for me and a great honor to introduce this year's Humanitas Professors in Contemporary Art and in museums, galleries, and libraries. The Humanitas program, which is in its second year, brings distinguished figures in many fields to Oxford and to Cambridge. It's uh, an initiative of Lord Weidenfeld, and I want to thank him and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue on behalf of the university and all those who I know are going to enjoy listening to and learning from the Humanitas Professors of 2012. I also want to record our immense gratitude to Foster and partners who have supported this initiative and made it possible to bring these speakers to Oxford. So the form for this afternoon is this. I shall introduce our Humanitas Professor in museums, galleries and libraries, and then he will speak. I'll then introduce our Professor in Contemporary Art, uh, and she will speak, and then there's a joint question session at the end. So you have, I think, a three-minute comfort break uh, between, those, uh, between those lectures. Uh, we don't want to encourage you to wander away, uh, and we're going to, so we're going to run the two lectures back-to-back -back and then ask for questions afterwards. And then we're going to have a reception here in the Said Business School, as you saw it being laid out as you came in, uh, and then you can talk to the professors directly then. This is, of course, not, however, your only chance to meet them. They're here for the week, uh, and some of the other activities are described on the flyer, which I think you've all, you've all seen, but I'll run through that before we break for the reception. Malcolm Rogers, uh, the Humanitas Professor of Museums, Galleries and Libraries, was here at Magdalen and then at Christchurch, where he read English and completed a DPhil. He joined the staff of the National Portrait Gallery as a specialist on 17th and 18th century painting, staging a number of memorable exhibitions, uh, including that very great exhibition, Van Dyck in England, a subject on which he is the leading authority. He became deputy director of the NPG, but in 1994, he moved to Boston as Anne and Graham Gunn director of the Museum of Fine Arts. And these have been very, very active years at the MFA. Malcolm began by opening up the Huntington Avenue entrance to the museum, which was hugely symbolic, it seemed to me. It, it turned the museum's face towards the city. And then he developed a whole series of exciting exhibitions, public programs, and indeed made some very remarkable acquisitions. Since then, he's led a hugely ambitious development of the building, adding a new wing for the Art of the Americas and the Ruth and Carl J. Shapiro family courtyard which opened in the November of 2010 to very great acclaim. Nobody, therefore, could be better suited to address us on his subject this afternoon, the Art Museum in the 21st Century. Malcolm. speaking to you today from a point somewhere in the mid-Atlantic of art museum culture. Someone, as you heard, who worked at the National Portrait Gallery for 19 years and has been in Boston for almost as long. 
Well, from this mid-Atlantic position, the horizons are wide, stretching for the, from, uh, from the first philanthropist founders of the museums in the 19th century uh, through rigorous, perhaps too rigorous, professionalization of museums in the 20th to a spirit of change in the late 20th century that seems to be getting faster in the early years of the 21st century. If the 20th century was all about control, the 21st is all about knowing when to relinquish control and what you simply can't control. Two truths have motivated me in my professional life. The first, that works of art embody much of what is best and most enduring in the human spirit and that they have the power to inspire, to delight and to comfort. And second, that the great art institutions of the world are critical components of a civilised society. I believe I was seized by the inspirational quality of art instinctively at the time of my first museum visit. I was aged about five or six, and it was the Bose Museum in County Durham to which I travelled with some friends of my parents. They told me I was going somewhere special, and there is the Bose Museum on the screen. I truly don't remember much of what I saw on that visit beyond the splendid building which looks like a French chateau landed like a UFO in Barnard Castle. There were some huge paintings, paintings of improbably huge saints with improbably huge feet and one great treasure. The object uh, that was fixed in my visual and you might say emotional memory from that day was, of course, their silver swan. The Silver Swan is a musical automaton in the form of a life-size swan. Its plumage is silver and it glides on a stream of crystal rods inhabited by silver fish. When the mechanism is wound up, the rods rotate, music begins and the swan twists its head to left and right and preens itself. Spotting a fish, it bends to catch it and swallows it as the music stops. About 40 seconds of pure fantasy, art transforming life, the natural swan made even more gorgeous by the addition of silver feathers, and instead of his actual diet of pondweed, a luxurious high-protein diet of silver fish. Well, with wonder comes the thirst for knowledge. Over the years, I've learned more about the swan and the man who brought it to life. One might say magician, for his name was John Joseph Merlin, here seen in a portrait by Gainsborough. We don't know the name of the silversmith who encased the mechanism in silver plumes, but the effect was transformational. And here is the mechanism, the carcass of a swan which the artist's skill transformed. I was reminded uh, of my swan not so long ago by a somewhat similar, though some would say very different, work of art exhibited at the Museum of Fine Arts. It's an installation piece by the contemporary British duo Tim Noble and Sue Webster with the sardonic title, Real Life is Rubbish. It's a double self-portrait in shadow play created out of domestic garbage, a metaphor of the artist's capacity to transform the mundane into something marvelous, the goose into a swan. Well, my silver swan has spent most of its life in the public eye. Who knows how many people it astonished over more than two centuries. One such was Mark Twain, who saw it at the Paris International Exhibition of 1867. Five years later, the philanthropist John and Josephine Bowes saw it at a Paris jeweller's. 
They bought it for £200 and brought it to Barnard Castle for the delight and benefit of the people of that community. A long preamble, but establishing the principle of the enduring power of art to move, inspire and educate. And the museum's unchanging mission to make art accessible to the greatest number of people for the benefit of all. Well, despite increasing competition from leisure, for leisure time from all around, it's interesting to note that over the past decade, a period of accelerating social change and one that covers one of the worst economic downturns and certainly the slowest recovery in US history, attendance at major museums has increased. And of course, attendance at museums eclipses attendance at sporting events year after year. This growing audience is ours to win or to lose. And I speak with the experience of two very different museums, the National Portrait Gallery, a national historical museum full of historical but also artistic treasures and which is predominantly government funded with free admission. The other, the Museum of Fine Arts, one of the world's great encyclopedic art museums, which is in essence privately funded. In a sense, probably the world's pri largest privately funded museum. Visitors pay an admission fee or pay to be members of the museum. We currently have about 74,000 households. Very different institutions with a shared mission and each facing the challenges and opportunities of a rapidly evolving century. Will museums be left behind? Just 10 years ago, there was a lecture series given at Harvard University Art Museums entitled Art Museums and the Public Trust. The list of speakers included some of the most distinguished museum directors of the time, and the lectures were subsequently published as Whose Muse? Art Museums and the Public Trust, edited by James Cuno, now president and CEO of the Getty Trust. The series was, I believe, symptomatic of a period anxiety, of anxiety amongst museum leadership, the type of anxiety that accompanies change that's too rapid for some established stakeholders. The catalyst of the lecture series was the concern that the museum was going through some sort of crisis that might ultimately damage the public trust in it. Here's a brief litany of some of the buzz issues of this Museums in Peril movement. Popularization, marketing, merchandising, inappropriate commercial relationships, reliance, over-reliance on temporary exhibitions, and reliance on new buildings by celebrity architects. Two underlying assumptions emerge from whose muse. Uh, the first, that the changes that were are, are afoot in museums uh, do indeed threaten the public trust and that the remedy for those ills is for museums to stay exactly as they are, or were then, set in the aspic of the second half of the 20th century, when many serving, or I ought to say surviving, museum directors began their careers. The second assumption, that museums are run by and for a visually literate elite, curator scholars working to please and impress their colleagues, that everything else is a more or less desirable add-on. Allied to this is a belief that as museums seek larger, more diverse audiences, they're diluting this essential mission. I disagree. The proponents of the elitist position, broadly speaking, seek to discredit change and the related burning issue, I believe, of audience development in two ways. 
The first to suggest that the pursuit of a broad audience leads to lower standards, to dumbing down. In doing so, they wildly uh, overestimate, perhaps willfully, uh, the level of visual literacy of even a highly educated audience. Far more dangerous is the attempt to portray museums and works of art and museum culture as essentially fragile. This is nonsense. The opponents of change, uh, the, the opponents of change project their own nervousness onto the institutions they seek to fossilize. Nor is art itself fragile. In fact, it's almost defined by its ability to endure, to survive over familiarity and commercial exploitation. Think of the millions of tourists who've seen Michelangelo's David or Leonardo's Mona Lisa. For each of them, how brief their glance, however trivial their motives, the journey is some sort of pilgrimage, uh, the joy of which may now be captured on their iPhones or indeed by Thomas Struth. Here we are in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Venice in 1992. These tourists, whether they purchased a postcard, a key ring, a fridge magnet as a souvenir, the commercial Transaction was an act not of desecration, but of homage, and perhaps a first step towards an enduring relationship with works of art. James Cuno, who in his preface to Whose Muse takes pains to distance himself from, and I quote, risk-taking expansionist directors and audience-building community activist directors, I'm proud to be a bit of both, proposes a modest plan of reform. He says, I would suggest that we could begin by clearing away some of the clutter in our museums, the many distractions we've introduced into them, the commercial, the alimentary, that's food, the promotional, the entertaining, even to the extent that it comes between the viewer and the work of art, the educational. And by weaning ourselves of our reliance on temporary exhibitions and all their attendant hype, we need to be more modest in our efforts. Well, don't hold your breath. The moving spirit in the foundation of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston was the artist patron uh, Charles Callahan Perkins, who in 1869 prepared a, a report on the feasibility of establishing a regular museum of art at moderate expense. Uh, that qualification is a very New England touch, as you'd know if you lived there. The general argument was, and I quote, that nations as well as individuals should aim at that degree of aesthetic culture, which, without passing the dividing line between general and special knowledge, will enable them to recognize and appreciate the beautiful in nature and art. The museum and its collections were to be a means of culture to the public, of education to artists and artisans, and of elevated enjoyment to all. It's evident that Perkins and his committee at this stage didn't envision a museum as essentially a centre of specialist art historical study. The supporters of the academic model of museum, which developed in the 20th century as museums became increase increasingly professionalised, and who were so quick to accuse those directors who are interested in audience building of forsaking their museum's mission, they are in fact the very ones in grave danger of forsaking the mission and losing the trust of an increasingly demanding public. A quick story against myself. Shortly after I arrived at the MFA, I was discussing ways in which we could make the museum more inviting. 
One of the things my advisor suggested was to put banners outside our entrances bearing the simple message, welcome in large letters. My response, well, perhaps that's just a little too populist for the moment, so we decided on a few flags instead. Well, here's a photograph of the museum when it opened in its first home in Copley Square in 1876. And what do we see over the door? Welcome in large capital letters. For a moment in the late 20th century, it seemed as if the most radical thing that an art museum director could, could do would be to return to the museum to its original philanthropic impulse, culture, education, and elevated enjoyment for all. In 1995, still in my first year at the MFA, we mounted an exhibition of the work of the fashion and celebrity photographer Herb Ritz, entitled Herb Ritz Work. The exhibition was almost universally castigated by artists, museum colleagues, locally and nationally, and of course, the media who sensed a fight. The public loved it. In 2012, this year, Herb Ritz LA Style opened at the Getty Museum, following the purchase of a substantial archive of his photographs and with the claim that he revolutionized fashion photography, modernized the nude, and transformed celebrities into icons. A recent promotion of a limited numbers docent-led tour of the exhibition featured, and I quote, discussions and cocktails after the tour. Sounds somewhat alimentary to me. The same story can be repeated for the MFA's 2005 exhibition, Speed, Style and Beauty, Cars from the Ralph Lauren Collection, transformed last year into La de l'Automobile at Les Arts Décoratifs, uh, the wing of the Louvre in Paris devoted to design. The point of all this is not to say that I was right, well, I can take a little satisfaction, but to say that the museum profession, aided and abetted by the media, was wrong. I note with interest that the Smithsonian American Art Museum has, is currently showing an exhibition entitled The Art of Video Games, featuring 80 games selected with the help of the public and featuring video interviews with 20 developers and artists. The cura curator of the exhibition is a passionate collector of video games, not a curator. The opening weekend featured panel discussions, movies, costume photo ops, and hands-on play. The point is that art museums in the 21st century cannot just return to the old canon of exhibition subjects, painting, sculpture, decorative arts, but must actively seek out new and refreshing sources of beauty, expressing the love and pride that artists, designers, craftsmen feel for their work. And museums ought to be advocates uh, for this new beauty. And by new, I don't simply mean the contemporary and the experimental. It's no coincidence that new curatorships endowed in recent years by private philanthropists at the Museum of Fine Arts have tended to, cross, to cut across old curatorial departmental boundaries. So we have musical instruments, jewellery, contemporary decorative arts, design, and what's called visual culture illustrated books, posters, postcards, and other ephemera. In which department, I ask, do video games belong? Well, no area of collecting and display cuts more across traditional boundaries than contemporary art. The landscape has now changed utterly, and I believe it can be safely asserted 
that no major museum in a major city can feel itself a good citizen without aspiring to be a major player as an exhibitor and acquirer of works of contemporary art. For an encyclopedic museum such as the MFA that exhibits the, the work of cultures from across the globe, a flatter world uh, makes almost boundless opportunities. And there's the problem. We can't do everything. Yet such a universal effort is expected by our public, the media, and in America by our collectors who are also philanthropists. They are themselves increasingly turning from old art to the collecting of the works of today. Such powerful figures often believe that a contemporary collection and contemporary programs are the answer to everything, making the museum relevant and guaranteeing a large, diverse, and youthful audience. Our old friend, the art newspaper, which at times might have been renamed the fake and looted art newspaper, has now morphed into the contemporary art newspaper. We're frequently uttered mantra, somewhat defensive, I suppose, here embodied in the work of the Italian artist Maurizio Nanucci, which belongs uh, to the Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, all art has been contemporary. This assertion alone is insufficient to prove that all contemporary art will stand the test of time. So it's a very exciting time, but not without its dangers. The hype is enormous, the prices are enormous, the works of art are enormous, and the fashionability is enormous. Dealers in contemporary art have been very successful in promoting the notion that if you don't buy it now, you'll never have the opportunity again. And indeed, were you lucky enough to have another opportunity, you won't be able to afford it. Urgency, the feeding frenzy of Art Basel and Miami Basel. Common sense alone tells us there's an almost infinite supply of contemporary art and artists, and that the chances of acquiring a great painting by, say, Jasper Johns, rare as they are, are significantly less rare than the opportunity to acquire a work by Titian or Rembrandt, though the prices may not be all that different. The Museum of Fine Arts has collected contemporary art almost from the time of its founding in 1871, though not without considerable, very considerable nervousness. In contrast, many European mu museums had in place from the time of their foundation and well into the 20th century what I'll call for convenience 50-year rules, meaning that a work of art couldn't be acquired until it had stood the test of 50 years or the artist had been safely dead for 50 years. At the National Portrait Gallery in London, a 50-year rule stated that the portrait of an individual might not be acquired until 50 years after his or her death in order to give time for their greatness to be assessed. Uh, this rule was abandoned in the 1970s, and from then on we have seen contemporary portraits acquired and commissioned by the gallery that have increasingly reflected fashionability and celebrity rather than significance of achievement. Another consequence of the abolition of the 50-year rule and the ability to acquire works that are brand new has a particular effect in the area of the decorative and applied arts. Take the example of Shiro Kuramata's Miss Blanche Chair of 1988, manufactured by the Ishimaru Company of Japan and made of paper flowers, acrylic resin and aluminium. It's beguiling, it's striking, 
an inventive design which made it a favourite for museums in the 1990s, including the Museum of Fine Arts. There are numerous examples in public collections. And one example of this chair brought more than £142,000 at auction in 2008. Well, unlike a chair by Thomas Chippendale, Miss Blanche has virtually no ownership history, no patina, no repairs, no buttocks have rested on that bed of paper roses, and it took no scholarship to find and identify her, just a checkbook. The romance of rarity, of pursuit, of discovery, of scholarship, gone. Every generation of contemporary collectors and curators seem to believe that they, in spite of all the historical evidence to the contrary, will get it right. Their choices, their purchases, will stand the test of time. But, well, not every foal will win the Grand National or the Kentucky Derby. As I look at Lucien Freud's Benefits Supervisor Sleeping of 1995, which you can see in London at this moment, I can't help being reminded, as a 17th century specialist, of Sir Peter Lely's portrait of Nell Green as Venus, surely one of the handful of authentic portraits of this remarkable lady, painted three and a quarter centuries earlier. Freud and Lely, both highly esteemed, fashionable and expensive artists in their time. Both paintings considered uh, shocking in their time as well. Well, the Freud sold at auction in 2008 for in excess of $33 million. Uh, the Lely failed to sell in 2011 against a pre-sale estimate of 600 to £800,000. I don't know what this proves, but think about it. An issue looming for our successors in museums, what to do with contemporary art that's no longer contemporary and which has not stood the test of time. As time goes on, there'll have to be a major sort out to identify the very best, or else the storerooms of our great museums will become choked, mere antiquarian repositories of the obscure and uninspiring, and also, I might add, the unconservable and the unlendable we're going to need a sort of retrospective version of the 50-year rule. All art has been contemporary is, to my mind, a simple and persuasive notion. But I actually prefer the mantra, all art is contemporary. Not just the shock of the new, but also at the very heart of every museum's mission, the shock of the old. We're the advocates for the power of art to change lives across cultures and all time. The silver swan still speaks to us. The fashion for contemporary art, as opposed to the best of contemporary art, like a cuckoo, is in danger of pushing old art out of the nest, uh, a concern expressed forcefully in the editorial of the latest edition of the Burlington Magazine, assessing recent re the re reinstallation at the old Tate. We have the responsibility to get the balance between old and new right. Well, let me now turn to issues of the funding of museums and the implications, practical and one might say moral, of that funding. I said earlier that the Museum of Fine Arts is arguably the largest privately funded museum in the world. Unlike the other great city museums of America, we receive no generous dollars from our city and less than a half a percent of our annual income from public sources, all told. Indeed, our city has, to pro has proposals to uh, subject us to a voluntary tax of a million dollars a year. 
But this is, in truth, only half the story. In reality, the people of America, the 50% who pay taxes, that is, are huge investments in our, investors in our museum and all our other cultural institutions, colleges, schools, hospitals, symphonies, every form of non-profit, through a system which allows generous tax deductions for charitable gifts. Every philanthropic dollar we receive, every gift of art, is by virtue of this system an investment by the American people who forego the tax income. Not really so different from the European system of government investment on behalf of the people, the taxpayers. However, in Europe, we've seen since at least the 1980s increasing government pressure on museums to seek alternative sources of revenue. Sadly, success has been known to bring a reduction in government support. And governments, in truth, joining in civil partnerships with museums and donors are not always so very faithful to the spirit of their vows. To my mind, it's a matter of the very greatest concern and sadness to see the present administration in Washington, D.C., seeking radically to diminish this system and a whole philanthropic culture that's the envy of every country in the world. In recent days, it's become clear uh, that tax deductions are also threatened in the UK. Yet the system as practiced in America is both democratic and efficient. Uh, think about it. Uh, the donors themselves direct their money to the causes they believe in. They pay the lawyers and accountants fees, and there always are fees like that in America. They recognize these people as philanthropists, as benefactors, leaders in their communities. And of course, all this is done without the huge administrative leviathan of a ministry of the arts. Uh, there, uh, the European system is different. Once we recognize that the public are huge, indeed the biggest investors in our museums, the question that ought to be foremost in our minds is how are we repaying that investment? The answer is not museums for museums' sake. The word that is fundamental to answering this fundamental question is, I believe, accessibility. Too often, the very buildings that house museums proclaim their inaccessibility across between palaces, mental hospitals, prisons and banks. Their opening hours are restricted to those when most people are at work. Most of their collections are in store, and they maintain whole departments that rigorously control the use of images of the objects in their care. Fortunately, all this is changing, and changing very, very rapidly. In Boston, guided by a site plan developed by Foster and Partners of London, the museum has been transformed. We've reopened our two historic entrances. Here's the Huntington Avenue entrance. Um, and we've also opened the Fenway entrance. Both the entrances closed uh, for years. This is a development that makes sense of our original uh, architectural plan, our original 20th century building. Uh, the, new, the new project incorporates vastly improved visitor facilities, sculpture, fountains, street lighting, ramps for the physically less able, landscaping, bringing life to an urban recreational area, the Back Bay Fens, where until recently the public feared to tread. Linking the museum to the landscape of the Fens was critical, but much more critical was Foster's design for the new wing of the museum devoted to art of the Americas. The design is almost an exercise in self-abnegation, in stark contrast to many recent museum buildings. 
It's a major contemporary building that is, in, in essence, an interior or series of interiors, a function clothed in a modest yet elegant skin. Foster creates a miraculous equilibrium between old and new, designing something beautiful and functional that served also to bring fresh romance and resonance to our historic building. Most critical is that the new building is transparent. There's extensive use of glass, and so it is that passers-by may see works of art as they stroll along the sidewalks of our city. Arguably more important, they can see people just like themselves wandering freely amongst the treasures. They now know for sure, they have the visual proof, that when you visit the museum, you can wear Levi's, bring the kids, push a pushchair, or use your iPhone. Another key factor is opening hours. Still in the United States, most museums are closed at least one day a week, usually Mondays, so especially to inconvenience long weekenders. The assertion is that the closed day is necessary, necessary to allow for all those things the public ought not to see, art being moved, installations taking form, and so on. Or is it, I wonder, a statement of territorial assertion and the notion that certain activities are too private, maybe too special, for the public even to glimpse? How strange that opera houses and concert halls manage to have open rehearsals. Well, the MFA has now been open for seven days a week for some 17 years, with the longest opening hours of any major museum in America. Think about it, just opening an extra day a week adds some seven and a half weeks annually to public accessibility and the art in our care. Allied to accessibility is the issue of the quality of the museum's facilities and the quality of the welcome. Why is it I often wonder that most museums' galleries are attended by security guards rather than greeters or ambassadors? Why are curators in their offices rather than in the galleries? Why are information desks always at the entrance but never in the galleries? Is too much of our practice governed by convention? Also critical is accessible programming. A recent benchmarking survey of our visitors carried out by a firm called La Placa Cohen of New York suggests that there's been a shift in the museum's core audience. It's younger, less affluent, and more likely to have children at home. It's highly educated, more wired than ever, particularly social media savvy. It's an audience seeking a cultural experience, not strictly an art experience. Art is the vehicle for a fine experience. Especially popular among our older offerings at the museum is a programme called First Fridays, our date night for young people of all ages. It's a great opportunity to overcome shyness with art and shyness about other things at the same time. Uh, a far newer programme that's growing exponentially is Playdate, that targets the needs of stay-at-home mums and dads caring for kids still in pushchairs. Mums and dads, and some nannies indeed, suffering from what is known in the States as cabin fever. Our free community days attract many thousands of people who find the price of admission, frankly, a barrier. Volunteerism. We welcome at the museum some 1,500 volunteers from all walks of life working in every department of the museum. It's an unforgettable and rich experience, an extraordinarily potent way of getting the message out that we're welcoming to all and need the, the support of a whole swath of the community. 
Uh, we catalogue 60,000 Japanese prints, listing, measuring, numbering, digitising, solely with a crew of volunteers overseen by one curator. My sense is that the concept of volunteerism is still viewed with acute suspicion in the UK and much of Europe, and I urge you to be bold and you'll win many friends and advocates. Let me now turn in the context of accessibility to what we may term the electronic revolution. Talk of websites is, thank heavens, already old hat, and we know only too well how quickly the visitation to them is increasing, almost as fast as the expectations of what they have to offer. MFA.org, like every other museum website, has vastly increased our interface with a world -class pub uh, worldwide public. We're on and use Facebook actively, plus all the other social networks, and I have even tweeted. New ways of welcoming our friends, but also a new and wider audience. But where will it lead? We don't know, and we can't control it. Ride the wave. Well, let me look at the electronic revolution in a different context, and that is of our collections. As we all know, one of the most persistent myths about museums is that they have about 95% of their collections in storage. This myth is, of course, absolutely true. Uh, for over a century now, the great American museums have shown themselves to be formidably effective hunter-gatherers, amassing huge collections of wonderfully diverse and beautiful objects. They've been far less effective in giving access to those study collections, a euphemism if ever there was one. Well, the electronic revolution is breaking down walls of storerooms and attics in whole museums so that our study collections are now available to all. Add to this the fact that we've created electronic records for nearly half a million objects at the MFA. We have digital uh, images of nearly 400,000 of those objects. Put those notions together and you begin to see the immense possibilities of having one day, not too far away, I hope, all of our collection, that of every other museum, online, accessible to anyone, anywhere in the world, day or night. To take a small and early example, we've already seen uh, the power of our website in drawing attention to unprovenanced works of art that may have been lost or stolen during the Holocaust period or otherwise looted or improperly acquired. And here I show you an image of Corrado Jaquinto's adoration of the mage I painted in about 1725, identified by means of our website by the descendants of its rightful owner, and now back in the museum thanks to a generous part gift, part sale arrangement. It's a splendid example of the museum fulfilling the public trust in its openness in a problematic area and seeing the rewards of openness as opposed to restricting information. This is, I believe, an issue that's critical for museums in the 21st century and will not go other way. Go away. There's a darker side, of course. Restitution claims, however far-fetched, are now seen as a potential goldmine by specialist lawyers. Add to this the increasing politicisation of cultural property issues by nationalist govern governments and a culture doused in the politically correct in the West, greatly encouraged by the media. When, I wonder, will we be returning Rembrandt's to Holland? And who will pay the lawyers' fees? Well, an inevitable, an inevitable consequence of the power and adaptability of the electronic database is the death of the printed museum catalogue. 
and those who opposed this change faced defeat as inexorably as the scribes who were put out of business with the invention of movable type. The traditional catalogue, which might take 20 years in production, was out of date before it was published. Its errors couldn't be corrected, and it could not be augmented. Arguably, it truly delighted only two people, the author and the author's mother, and uh, even she did not read it. By contrast, the electronic catalogue has a life as soon as the first entry is created. It can be perpetually added to and updated. It's a living thing. Add to this the potency of the digital image, which, because of its high resolution, can allow you to count the stitches in a needlework. Here's one such needlework. More safely than you can with the object itself in front of you. Imagine a catalogue in which you can see all sides of a vessel or even inside it. A catalogue entry where you can hear the actual sound a musical instrument plays. Imagine a catalogue where you can hear a contemporary artist speak. Imagine a catalogue that's, that's attached to a chat room where scholars can meet and share their ideas and information, a model that's become commonplace in the scientific and medical worlds. I well remember asking a curator a few years ago to imagine the excitement of making a discovery in the morning and being able to share it with the world of scholarship in the afternoon. His reply, what, even with my enemies? <laughs> Collaboration rather than competition is becoming the norm and with a corresponding loss of control of information. But the long-term ramifications of this electronic revolution are even greater. For once people know what we have in our storerooms and attics, they'll want to see them, to study them, and then uh, to borrow them. At the MFA, the New Art of the Americas wing, and indeed the Lindy family wing for contemporary art, which opened recently, represent a major reallocation of resources uh, away from temporary exhibitions to the so-called permanent collections, making our commitment to bringing works of art out of storage and sharing them with the public. In this context, uh, it's a truism that the answer to one museum's problems lies in another museum's storeroom. And I venture to suggest that, stimulated by this new transparency, we'll also see in the 21st century an expanding culture of trusteeship and philanthropy, supporting more generous programmes of institutional loans, international loans, and indeed object exchanges. Our leaders and our public will insist that this happens in fulfilling their investment. It's a collaborative culture that has the potential to extend worldwide. And if museums don't do it, others will. The distinguished Californian philanthropists and collectors, uh, Edie and Eli Broad, whose extensive collections of contemporary art have been coveted by museums across the US, have created a different sort of model in the Broad Art Foundation. It's a non-museum, it's a great lending library, in response to their belief that if their collection were devoted to a single or even a group of museums, much of it would, lack, would languish in study storage. The culture of lending significant bodies of work to other venues is growing. Uh, we have the Nagoya Boston Museum of Fine Arts opened in 1996, and you all know about the outstations of the Guggenheim Museum. A slightly newer venture which caught my eye and which is distinctly in tune with the times is the outstation of the Rijksmuseum Amsterdam at Schiphol Airport, bringing art to the busy aerial commuter. And in Lisbon, we find a museum of musical instruments in an underground 
station. I'm sure you can think of more recent ventures. The, the scene is changing all the time. Some view this expansionism with alarm and feel that the collection should remain in the headquarters building. Uh, I disagree. I well remember my involvement when working at the National Portrait Gallery in two outstations operated in partnership with the National Trust and one operated in partnership with Denbyshire County Council. Wide geographic distribution serving underserved audience. How thrilling these days to experience a reinvention of the Tower of London in the Royal Armouries, not on the banks of Thames, but on an industrial canal in Leeds. Such opportunities are inevitably most easily seized in times of economic prosperity and strong leadership, both in museums and in government. And I hope that the thirst for such initiatives is not running out. In the US, we see a number of smaller museums with small endowments in less rich cities virtually on the bulk, uh, the brink of bankruptcy. Arguably, their only hope of survival is a renewal of philanthropy and adoption by a larger institution. I say and uh, because, in truth, there's virtually no major museum in the United States rich enough to undertake such a rescue without a substantial injection of philanthropic capital. It's true to say that touring exhibitions comprising works of art exclusively from the MFA's collections are now seen around the world annually by more than the 1.2 million visitors who come to the museum itself in Boston. Just recently, we opened Treasures of Japanese Art uh, from the MFA Boston at the National Museum in Tokyo, where it's attracting some 7,000 visitors a day. In the late 20th century, department stores were the usual venues for travelling exhibitions. We seem to have gone up in the world. In America, however, the newest unorthodox venue, the equivalent of the Japanese department store, is the casino, notably in Las Vegas, where the Guggenheim, the Hermitage and the MFA have strutted their stuff to a distinctly culturally deprived but far from unsophisticated audience. It's clear to me that uh, were the Salvation Army to refuse to go to Las Vegas, rattling its collection boxes and saving souls, it would be criticised. Las Vegas is America's fastest growing and fastest shrinking city. And on a visit there, I was delighted to hear a TV weather forecaster break into his broadcast to say, it's sunshine again in Las Vegas, and to ask, and who are those art snobs on the East Coast who say we can't have Monet in our town? I recently noted that no less a figure than Damien Hurst saw our Las Vegas money exhibition. Uh, alas, his admiring comments on, uh, on Monet's brushstrokes as printed, uh, littered as they were with four-letter words, I can't repeat them here. He was impressed, though. So where are the venues for the future? I already see emerging in our own work at the Museum of Fine Arts new alliances with hospitals and with retirement communities. And all I can do is ask, where next? Back to my main theme of accessibility and to museum publishing. Personally, I believe that as the electronic revolution frees museums of the burden of publishing certain materials in printed form, it will free up resources for the publishing of books, real books or electronic, of ideas of art history and art ed education. 
and we should set the standard of intellectual discourse about the works of art in our care. I cannot overestimate the challenge in the 21st century of writing about great art in a way that's intelligent, lucid, fresh, stimulating, and to use what at first may seem a strange word, helpful, you might say accessible. Where are the talents that can explain beauty and yet not destroy it in the process, that are able to distinguish the style of one artist or period from another and express it in fine uh, words? Who can unlock the stories in a work of art, those art experiences we talked about earlier, not just art history? Well, I want to express my own frustration with the sheer dullness of much writing about works of art, so often written so as to impress or depress uh, the three other specialists in the field. Am I the only one who notices the leaden impenetrability of much writing about contemporary art in particular? The isms of Freudianism, Marxism, structuralism, feminism, and a host of new ones, plus political correctness, so noisily buzzing in the brains of our universities years ago, still corrupt the quality of writing in museums. To take a lighter note, the outdoorsy bachelor American artist Winslow Homer has been especially unfortunate in the attentions of writers who are followers of Freud. I show you his electrifying painting, uh, The Fox Hunt, in the Pennsylvania Academy, dating from 1893, cruel winter in New England and nature red in tooth and claw, the crows seeking to kill the fox. In analysing uh, this painting, the author of the catalogue of the last major exhibition of Homer's work, originated at the National Gallery Washington, Nikolai Sikovsky, shown at the MFA and at the Metropolitan Museum New York, quotes the words of Homer's biographer Thomas B. Hess, who wrote of the fox in the painting, dapper, small, inquisitive, shrewd, Homer's unconscious self-portrait, the black crows as a representation of the nightmare of the flying penis, where the manifestations of Homer's repressed sexuality and autoerotic fantasies. <laughs> uh, that Homer did not take these things quite so seriously may, in, may be indicated by his signature. He was a master of witty, punning signatures in this painting. Bottom left, you can see it, half buried by, or perhaps repressed, by a snowdrift. Emboldened by Mr. Hesse's imaginative interpretation of the fox hunt, Mr. Sikovsky returns his attention to, to, to Homer's equally iconic The Gulf Stream of 1899. And we read, The sharks in the Gulf Stream, circling the helpless boat with sinuous seductiveness, can be read as castrating temptresses, their mouths particularly resembling the vagina dentata, the toothed sexual organ that so forcefully expressed male fear of female aggression. The author goes on to justify his interpretation by quoting a letter that purportedly indicates Homer's intense dislike of women. Well, actually, and more understandably, his dislike of female journalists. Here's what Homer writes. Of course, these women who work for the press expect and want everything they can get, and then they beat you up. It's obvious that Homer couldn't bring himself to say castrate, but it's abundantly clear that that's precisely what he meant. <laughs> well, while we laugh at the inherent preposterousness of all this, I want to remind you that this nonsense was published by the National Gallery and that where scholars lead, lesser intellects follow. 
in Boston not so long ago, we endured the experience of a former art critic of the Boston Globe who saw John Singer Sargent's grandly sonorous Elgarian uh, public portrait of the Marquis of London during 1904 as, and I quote, ridiculous, worthy of a giggle, a huge phallic symbol awaiting its Freud. The comment was sophomoric and willfully destructive, but how many people has the appreciation of this noble for how many people has the appreciation of this noble painting been somewhat clouded and whose taste, understanding and judgment corrupted by so foolish an analysis? The qualities I'm seeking in books and exhibition catalogues might also pervade, must also pervade a museum's written and other communications ranging from the printed object label to the audio tour. Too often, but increasingly less so, things are really speeding up. Museum curators and indeed educators have been guilty of writing for the audience they are most comfortable with, their colleagues. What about the public that might have quite different expectations, the cultural experience, uh, not strictly an art audience? Uh, recently, the MFA mounted an imaginative programme called Step This Way, a tour of our galleries in which shoes and boots were paired with paintings and other objects of similar period or origin. One pair of elegant shoes that had been worn by Marilyn Monroe was paired with Andy Warhol's portrait of her. The object label for the shoes stated their maker, the materials, the date, and when Monroe had worn them, but it omitted to answer the key question that everybody wanted but was afraid to ask, what size of shoe did Marilyn Monroe take? I seem to remember it was seven and a half medium, American, the art experience. Well, a key role of the museum in the 20th century is to speak to and engage a broad and diverse audience who are increasingly using new and rapidly changing means of communication. If museum communicators, whether curators, educators, or whoever can be effective communicators, writing or speaking, teaching, tweeting, blogging, or blasting to a diverse public and not just an audience of their peers, they can be heroes in our community. They, their modes of discourse must be accessible, the tone of voice personally, personal. Recently, we've taken to prefacing our exhibitions with quite personal curatorial statements explaining why the exhibition was something that the curator wanted to bring to the public. Our current exhibition, Alex Katz Prints, features in every gallery two text panels expressing the contrasting views of two very different curators who mounted the show. Of course, I'm talking of text panels, labels, audio guides, blogs. Will these terms still be used in 2050? I suspect and indeed hope not. As in the 20th century, preservation of the works of art in our care in order to make them accessible will be just as critical in the 21st, but the challenges become ever more formidable as collections grow, artists' materials increasingly experimental, often ephemeral, and the works often of very large size. And the issue is even more acute in Britain, where museums are unable to deaccession inferior works of art or works of art in such poor condition that resources are simply not available. The crisis goes hand in hand with what is in many ways an admirable professionalisation of conservation staff. Standards are higher, work practices infinitely meticulous, with increasing emphasis on preparatory research and documentation. But the result is that fewer objects are being treated, 
rescued from the ravage of time. The other side of this coin is that museums are increasingly meticulous about issues of condition when thinking about making acquisitions. Uh, to the extent that a painting that has been lined, for instance, attached to a second canvas to make it uh, stronger and more stable, uh, lined paintings are now objects of intense suspicion. For contemporary works of art, the bar is set even higher. They must remain pristine, even though they may be actually unstable in terms of the materials used. I look at uh, Damien Hirst and his celebrated shark in formaldehyde and think of William Blake's epitaph on Sir Joshua Reynolds, famous, famous for his use of experimental pigments that turned out to be unstable. This is Blake. When Sir Joshua Reynolds died, all nature was degraded. The king dropped a tear in the queen's ear and all his pictures faded. What do we do when a shark begins to deliquesce? In their pursuit of quality, this generation of curators ought always to have in mind the pursuit of great beauty, not be distracted by lesser considerations as fashion, historical importance, or price, whether high or low. For many great works of art may be unfashionable, historically less than significant, and sometimes even cheap. The same goes for condition. A moment of vision occurred to me on a recent visit to the galleries of the Art Institute of Chicago, where uh, a brilliant former curator there pointed to Zurbrand's great canvas of the crucifixion, one of the highlights of the museum, and said, of course, we probably wouldn't acquire that painting today if it came before our collections committee, because it's in such poor condition. And that would be a tragedy. Condition, price, we should concern ourselves with value and the enduring quality of great art. A few years ago, I was passing through our gallery of paintings by John Sigur Sargent, a popular but art historically unfashionable artist, and noticed a prosperous early middle-aged couple muttering to one another, as it seemed, and occasionally sighing audibly. Uh, with directorial curiosity, I went up and asked whether they were sighing because they were happy or distressed. And this is the story that unfolded. A few years ago, the husband on a business trip uh, to Boston had visited the museum and viewed our gallery of sergeants and went away believing that he'd seen one wall at the Museum of Fine Arts, which was, I quote, the most beautiful wall uh, in any museum anywhere in the world. It was, of course, the wall with Sargent's Boyt daughters at its centre. Now, on a cruise down the East Coast, he jumped ship with his wife to show her that most beautiful wall, and he urged me never to change the wall. Well, in truth, his beautiful wall had changed several times since he last saw it, and now you can come to the museum and see it on the different wall in our new Art of the Americas wing. What remains unchanged is the quality of the works of art themselves, the quality of the presentation environment, the commitment of our volunteers and staff uh, to preserving that excellence through the process of change, the timeless values of a great museum. Perhaps I will, I think I have five minutes more. When I first came to Boston, Christopher looks doubtful. <laughs> when I first came to Boston in the 1960s, there were plans mooted to demolish our great Huntington Avenue stairs. Uncomfortable symbols, it was alleged, of the elitism and paternalism of an earlier age. 
How close these plans came to execution, I don't know. But in this context, I quoted some inspiring words of the founder of modern art criticism, John Ruskin. He's writing of his childhood experiences of seeing works of art in the, in the stately homes of England for the first time. This is what he says. To my further benefit as I grew older, I thus saw nearly all the noblemen's houses in England in reverent and healthy delight of uncovetous admiration. Perceiving as soon as I could perceive any political truth at all, that it was pro I was probably much happier to live in a small house and have Warwick Castle to be astonished at than to live in Warwick Castle and have nothing to be astonished at. But that at all events, it would not make Brunswick Square the least more pleasantly habitable to pull Warwick Castle down. And to this day, though I have kind invitations enough to visit America, I couldn't even for a couple of months live in a country so miserable as to have no castles. <laughs> he was, of course, almost literally correct. But America does have at least its palaces, its, people, its people's palaces, there its great museums. And even as he was writing, the Museum of Fine Arts was 15 years old. There you see a group of school children under sergeant's great mural decorations. And it's enough for me, I have to say, to hear one child coming to the museum and exclaim cool when they see this vision. And to know that for a moment or perhaps a lifetime, they're going to take ownership. For that child and that children's children, we have an enduring and paradoxical responsibility to stay the same while changing constantly. Thank you.